In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Education, it is the key to understanding our past, our present, and hopefully looking towards our future. Last month here on the program, we talked about compulsory education, the state of the education system here in the state of Illinois, um, the potential for um, massive amounts of private invested money to be out of the system and over 7,500 kids left in the rotting Chicago public school system in a few places elsewhere in the state of Illinois. But this month, we're going to be focusing on problems and solutions to those problems. And I can't think of anybody better right here on Critical Thinking than to talk with Carrie McDonald, host of the Liberated podcast. So let's get in to some critical thinking. Yes, that's right. I am joined right now by Carrie McDonald, host of the Liberated podcast. And uh, you're a writer just about almost anywhere I can find these days, too. So where else can people find you besides that podcast? Yeah, so it's the Liberated liberatedpodcast.com, but I also write frequently at Forbes.com, and I have a regular column at the 74. Uh, and you can find me at the Foundation for Economic Education at fee.org slash carry. Yeah, and we love using fee.org here um, because it just makes people think. Um, it's one of my favorite places to go to to find news and think pieces, and it's really great. So, uh, Carrie, we are super excited to have you on the program. Um, Pat uh, couldn't be here today, but it's just going to be me, myself, and I. Uh, but what I really wanted to start with is – you really helped educate me on the true history of public education in America. And we, we kind of featured that last month in, in some of our education-focused content. Um, but what would you say maybe the biggest myth around public education or compulsory education in America today about its history, about what the it biggest, was about? 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, there's so much there. You know, I, I think maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the origins of compulsory education in the U.S. and that might build up to what I think are, are some of the bigger myths. Um, so compulsory education, the first compulsory education laws were passed uh, in the 1640s in Massachusetts. arrival of the pilgrims in what became Massachusetts Bay Colony. And so in the 1640s, these compulsory education laws essentially created a state interest in uh, the ed in educated citizenry and required towns of a, a certain size to either uh, hire and pay for a teacher or to open and operate grammar schools. So the compulsion at the time in these early compulsory education statutes lay with the municipalities. They were the ones that were compelled to offer uh, education services for any family that wanted them. But the families weren't compelled to use those services. Uh, and many didn't. There were, of course, homeschooling was, of course, the default. That was what most families in kind of the early colonial and revolutionary periods did. Um, there were increasing, you know, charity schools and church schools and various other options. Obviously, apprenticeships for adolescents were kind of the, the main stepping stone to adulthood. So that was kind of the education ecosystem for a couple of hundred years. And then in 1852, uh, Massachusetts again led the way with compulsion in passing the first compulsory attendance law. And this was a real game changer from those kind of earlier compulsory education laws, which again required cities or towns uh, to be compelled to offer services. Now, all of a sudden, parents were required to send their children to school under a legal threat of force. Uh, and that was extraordinary when you think about it. Um, many students, you know, we already had really high rates of literacy, somewhere in the 90% figure in Massachusetts at the time. Um, there were, you know, all of these different diverse education options available to people. Of course, we had, you know, the societal roadblocks and barriers that existed at the time that prevented women or people of color from accessing education. Mm -hmm. That was more societal um, problems at the at the moment that didn't, you know, wasn't really remedied specifically by compulsory schooling. And so this gets to your question of kind of one of the biggest myths. And I think this was certainly something I never realized about um, education until I started researching it, uh, you know, in my in my profession of really what are what was the true origin story of um, American compulsory schooling because we're we're told oh you know compulsory public schools were the great equalizer and this was the way to bring opportunity to the masses um, and when you dig a little bit under the surface you realize that was what was actually happening specifically in in Massachusetts and in Boston in particular uh, in the kind of early to mid 19th century leading up to the passage of the first compulsory attendance law, which was, of course, replicated in all other states, was a deep anti-immigrant sentiment that was pervasive. So this was a time when, particularly in Boston, um, there was um, rapid immigration among specifically Irish Catholics um, fleeing the Irish potato famine. Uh, 
And that really challenged the kind of dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of the time. I mean, the population of Boston more than doubled between 1820 and 1840, again, with people who um, challenged the you know, ethos at the moment. And that was really threatening. And in fact, uh, in 1850, so just a couple of years prior to the passage of this compulsory attendance law, you had the Massachusetts legislature saying, quote, those pouring in upon us in masses of thousands upon thousands are wholly of another kind in morals and intellect. Uh, so there was just this deep um, fear and frustration with uh, immigration. And, you know, frankly, that was a, a contributing factor to leading to compulsory schooling, specifically because this was thought of as a way to kind of um, acculturate or assimilate these Irish Catholic children into this dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, sphere. And so these, you know, purportedly secular public schools were anything but, you know, they had the King James version of the Bible, they had Protestant teachers and Protestant texts. Uh, and now you have these Irish, you know, families, Irish Catholic families required to send their kids there. And many didn't, you know, they rebelled and ended up creating their own parochial system, sort of a par parallel education system, because they wanted to preserve their culture and their history. Uh, and then, of course, states began to pass what are known as Blaine Amendments, which sort of were anti-Catholic education amendments in the 1800s to sort of prevent the proliferation of um, non-public schools, specifically Catholic schools, and so on. So kind of a, a checkered past when we think about the, uh, the history of American compulsory schooling. Yeah, I think, you know, as I dug in, that was the number one greatest myth for me was that this was about creating that level playing field and everybody has that opportunity when in reality the the very nature of the compulsion of attendance was to conform to a very specific ethos if you want to say it that way uh, or a very specific religious ethos and to control a quote-unquote out-of-control immigration problem and we'll leave that for its own its own time and its own place um, in, in the history. But in terms of the education, this was an effort to everybody has to be this Anglo-Saxon Protestant Massachusetts version of that. And then it spread like wildfire. It became a thing, especially with the Blaine Amendments and, and going forward. Um, that really happened all throughout the country. And it was, it was amazing to read that history because we are never taught that. We are taught an absolute myth about what our public education system is and what its value system is supposed to be and what it was. It was never about, you know, the, the equal, equalization of poor Protestant, poor Catholic, you know, rich this or that. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with ideology and ethos. And I think that's a fascinating part of our uh, public education history that nobody learns. That's right. And, uh, and coercion, right? I mean, there was mm -hmm. this deep sense that we could control the population through compulsory schooling, uh, threatening parents with jail time, significant fines if they didn't 
send their children to these schools. And it, what really happened, um, specifically with the passage of compulsory attendance laws, was that what, what was kind of a very broadly defined and varied um, practice of education became uh, minimized and narrowed into the four walls of a conventional public school classroom, which is really where education has remained largely uh, up until more recently um, with kind of the advent of parental choice in education and education choice policies, obviously the growth and diversification of homeschooling and now micro-schooling and education entrepreneurship. Um, but you know, for, for most of the past 150 plus years, um, schooling has been really, um, really, you know, focused on coercion, compliance, obedience, uh, and a one size fits all model. Yeah, exactly. And if you ever wonder why education seems to be that one size fits all from a public school standpoint, it, it's that was founded that way. It was on purpose. It was not a happy coincidence. It's not something where, you know, they got together at teachers colleges and said, yeah, let's do this. No, that wasn't what was going on. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But as we move forward, you know, you also mentioned, and I think one of the interesting parts of this is that parallel, right? And we're kind of seeing that even present itself again today, what, 150, 200 years almost later, here we are where there's a lot of parallel education happening. And back then it was, no, we're not doing this. You're not going to Protestantize my Catholic son or daughter. We're, we're not doing this. And they created their own ecosystem. And that's where you get the tradition of Catholic schools and the, the parochial system. That's where that comes from. But today we have those two options still, but there are many other ways going forward. So are we seeing today more innovation in education that is to the betterment of education? I want to go there first versus just giving options because options can exist and we can make money. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think what we're seeing culturally more generally is a, a greater push towards decentralization and personalization in our lives. Um, I think that's been accelerated through technology and, and advances and in innovation over the past several decades. And now we're seeing it impact education, which has uh, heretofore been really a difficult nut to crack. And yet, what you find now is more and more families expecting, demanding um, the personalization and education that they enjoy in all other areas of our, you know, of our lives, of their lives. And, and that's what I think is really um, leading to this shift away from centralized, one-size-fits-all government schooling into a much more diverse uh, education ecosystem of options uh, that parents really want. And then one of the questions that I really have been struggling with and dealing with as it comes to the want for educational freedom, that's kind of where I come down is I'm for educational freedom, the most amount of freedom for parents, for students, for educators to, to really maximize their potential. That's what I care about um, because I think our society is better for it. I think they're better for it. And who am I to dictate what, pace you learn at, how you learn, what you learn, and what's important to you. But one of the things that I find interesting in the 
arguments that we see in especially places like Texas or Missouri or other places in which we are seeing this um, this move towards universal vouchers. One of the things I think is interesting from my perspective, and maybe you can speak to this, is the feeling of all we're doing is shifting the chairs on the Titanic. We're still collecting tax money to then give right back to you to do what with. So the government is telling you, you must spend this money or what? It's your money or we're collectivizing all of this money. Do you see it that way or is it a little bit different for you? Yeah, great question. I guess I'd start, Andrew, by saying that that these these education choice programs that are um, being passed and have been passed over the past couple of years are much more than just vouchers. So voucher would be you get um, you know payment from a portion of spending from you know the public school to use toward a private school. And while that still exists in some places where we're seeing the most growth in education choice programs are with uh, what are known as education savings accounts, ESAs, which have a much broader definition of education. I'm sort of what we you know think about pre-1852. Uh, and these programs, again, allow a portion of state funding of education uh, to go to families in the form of a savings account, like a debit card or something like that, to use on approved education expenses, which could include uh, tuition at a traditional private school, but are so much more uh, all-encompassing than that. They can include tutoring services and microschools and learning pods and curriculum and resources and educational therapies, you know, all kinds of different um, ways to sort of define and, and utilize education. I think that's what makes them incredibly disruptive and powerful to really enable families to craft and customize uh, an education program for their kids that's really uh, tied with their interests and values. So that's just sort of a... Um, uh, mm-hmm. maybe a clarification on the terminology, but I think what your larger question gets to is, yes, like, is this, what is the meaning of this? What is the, the ultimate um, impact? Are we just shifting funds around? And I think that, the, you know, clearly the kind of true libertarian approach would be, uh, and I'm a libertarian, which would be to eliminate compulsory schooling laws, compulsory attendance laws, um, that that is sort of the, the mechanism by which the state exerts control over its citizens in the form of education. As long as we have compulsory schooling laws, and you know we should work toward efforts to eliminate those, but as long as we have them, we have a situation in which uh, U.S. taxpayers are spending more than $800 billion every year on K-12 public schooling. And what education choice programs do is say, well, let's redistribute that funding um, to the families so that they're not, this funding isn't just going to this large one-size bureaucracy, educational Mm -hmm. bureaucracy that many parents aren't satisfied with and many taxpayers aren't satisfied with. Let's decentralize that. Let's redistribute it. But you're right. I mean, it's still it's still socialism, right? We're we're still uh, we're still redistributing taxpayers taxpayer funding that we've um, taken by force through compulsory taxation. And you know, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who popularized the idea of education choice and um, specifically vouchers when he wrote about them in his 1955 paper on the topic. 
he later wrote in his book, Free to Choose, that, um, you know, he saw vouchers as a partial mechanism, but wasn't sort of the ultimate goal of what his vision was. He and his economist wife, Rose, was for education choice because he said, you know, vouchers don't address the underlying issue of compulsory attendance and compulsory taxation. And he said, you know, we propose going much further. Um, and so he recognized that too, that this is just a, a way of kind of, again, cracking that knot of one size fits all bureaucratic schooling and, and enabling uh, a much more diverse, decentralized, choice driven educational model. Yeah. And I think from a purely economic standpoint, um, that it would have, and this is why I think I support parts of this is because it does have an effect on this ever-increasing administrative state within the compulsory public education system, right? Because if your dollars are continuing to go elsewhere, they can't sustain the 15, 20, 30% raises, especially in a place like Chicago, where I live, where we see the direct effects of that, you know, 90% of the state funding is going to administrative state versus 10% to the student. And so I see some of those benefits and, and I just struggle with how do you, on both sides of this, how do you say you're going to collectivize the, the intake of funds and then, um, and then socialize the distribution of the funds? Like somebody in Peoria needs less money than somebody in Chicago does to get a public education, right? Or to get a private education or to go through those things. And so at the same point in time, I, I get that this is a, a move towards that. And then I also wonder about what do you do when you totally take the rug out and the the poor kid on the south side of Chicago or on the west side of Chicago it, whose mom or dad or, or just one of them are only wor- are working two jobs and making minimum wage, right? Or making, you know, 30, 40 grand a year. What do you do when their tax base isn't the same? Right. And they're not contributing the same or able to contribute the same to an educational platform. And I think that's where choice really helps. What's a. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd look at, you know, what we what we have in other social services, right? Um we have housing vouchers for people who need um, shelter. We have food stamps for um, poor people who can't afford 
to put food on their table and they are able to choose where they're purchasing their their food or where they may be choosing to live with one of their housing vouchers. So the same is true with education, um, that we don't need a government-run compulsory system of schooling to provide education services to all children. Uh, and in fact, we'll likely get much better outcomes in terms of educational results mm-hmm. if it's not government-run. Yeah, and I think, you know, Illinois is actually an interesting case study in some of this because they, you know, a lot of the talk has been about taking away um, what's going on with the Invest in Kids Act and all this stuff. But what people don't realize is that it is 100% po- or privately funded system. People are getting given tax incentives to donate to it, but it is 100% private donations that people give into this system that give scholarships. It's a direct scholarship for these students. And I think it's an interesting way to say, uh, that we that we kind of have this public private partnership that hey guess what you guys have an incentive to do this as a government um you know we're going to incentivize you the private citizen to contribute and look what they did with those contributions it's hundreds of millions of dollars into that system privately donated collected by the government and distributed yes but it is largely a private situation um Right. It's Are there other places like that in, for, in the country? For, sure. Yeah. Tax credits and tax credit scholarship programs are a popular form of education choice that reduces taxpayer burden. And in this case, then um, the funding gets distributed through a scholarship program to low income students uh, mm-hmm. to use at various private schools. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, a great way of um, and it is often an early way that states Um, approach education choice and then kind of build up from there to, again, um, uh, get at this, you know, these hundreds of billions of dollars every year that taxpayers are putting into the system uh, and to make it much more diverse and personalized and decentralized uh, in in choice-enabled ways. Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept, but obviously that's going to probably go the way of the dodo bird here. Uh, in the state of Illinois, and I think it'll be interesting to see the fight here, uh, given the power of the Chicago Teachers Union, the Illinois Teacher Association, um, all of that sort of stuff that we talked about last month. But what I really wanted to focus in on, less so on how it's funded, but more so on what options actually exist, because I think when I have conversations with friends of mine who are beginning to get into the stage of my kids are going to first grade or, or beyond, it's public school or test into this school or take them into a private school. And that's the end of the conversation. And I think to myself, you you don't, I think, understand what's really out there for you. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much more out there and so much more being created every day, especially over the last three years of education disruption uh, prompted by the COVID response so we see things like the proliferation of micro schools and learning pods. The, uh, these would be sort of intentionally small learning communities, often mixed age um, with a personalized curriculum. So we're not sort of 
requiring all students at certain ages or grade levels to be working at the same content in the same way. We're saying, you know, where are you at in terms of your mastery levels? And, and we'll work with you to kind of devise a curriculum that, that meets you where you're at and, and helps to close gaps in your own way. Uh, and all of these programs are tend to be uh, very low cost, a fraction of the cost of traditional private schools. Many of the micro schools that I spotlight are a third or a quarter of the cost of traditional private schools. So they're already more accessible to more families. And these were, um, you know, interest and momentum around these models were building pre-2020. I wrote all about them uh, in my unschooled book that came out in 2019. Um, we also, of course, again, see the growth and diversification of homeschooling and various homeschool resource centers and learning programs. Um, that was also occurring over the first couple of decades of the new millennium. And all of that has converged over the past three years as parents uh, became more open to different ways of approaching teaching and learning and, and maybe dabbled a little bit with homeschooling uh, in 2020. Uh, although, you know, those of us who are familiar with uh, what homeschooling <laughs> looks like would say that wasn't really homeschooling. But nonetheless, they were home with their kids and, and seeing what they were or were not learning through remote Zoom schooling. Uh, and I think it really uh, enabled parents to start to think, wow, you know, I haven't really thought much about my child's education before, what they're learning, who they're learning with, um, the quality of the education they're receiving. And now I'm realizing there's this whole other world of education options. And I'm also seeing, gosh, you know, schooling seems like it's stuck in the 19th century when we're in the 21st century with all of this incredible innovation and personalization around us could education look differently? And that, of course, led to many entrepreneurial parents and teachers opening new programs, saying, I can't find what I want for my kids, so I'm going to build it. Uh, and then parents being excited by what they're seeing in their communities and flocking to that. And then that leads to more demand for uh, these new and different programs. And that's what's been exciting for me to be able to kind of spotlight and do storytelling around over the past few years. And my my podcast, I interview these education entrepreneurs every day, again, everyday parents and teachers building these incredible, innovative, low cost learning models um, because they felt like education could and should look different and they wanted to be a part of that change. And, you know, I launched my podcast in February of 2022 as a once a week program. Six months in, I had such a backlog of entrepreneurs that I had to boost it to twice a week. And now I'm uh, almost two years in, and I still have a, a backlog because there's just so many of these incredible stories of mm -hmm. um, of these visionary entrepreneurs building incredible things. Yeah, and I think you know, ha having taken a listen to this podcast and and really dived into it uh, or dove into it, I should say, in the past uh, couple of months here, I, I find it fascinating that so many of the stories that you tell, it's everyday mom and dad, it's everyday individuals who just simply wanted something different and said, no, I'm not, no, I don't accept the status quo. The answer, the answer isn't more of the same. So let me do something different and try. Some of them have struggled, failed. Others have done really great things and, and produced larger results than they ever thought they would. Some, you know, have amazing stories that you're telling, and I appreciate that. I think the fast, the most fascinating for me is the micro-schooling. Um, can you kind of go into 
the background of micro schooling, what it really is for those who may not know about it, because I think I think this is the for me the greatest innovation in education in the last probably 150 years is is how this takes place and what it's really about. Yeah, so I use the term micro school um, more as an umbrella term, a catch-all term that could include a, a variety of different learning approaches. Um, it could be uh, sort of the modern version of a one-room schoolhouse, as I was describing earlier, kind of a mixed-age, multi-age um, classroom, you know, one-room classroom with sure. a couple of hired educators and anywhere from 50 to 100 kids. You could have learning pods that would be probably even smaller, maybe fewer than a dozen kids that might take place in a, in a private home uh, or commercial space. There's hybrid homeschool programs, which have been around really since the mid-1990s, but have gained increased popularity in the past several years that, um, that work as uh, kind of homeschool collaboratives, but families are able to drop off their kids two or three days a week and have kind of a full suite of classes with hired educators and then do the rest of their learning at home the remainder of the week. Um, so there's all kinds of different models, but what's really uh, kind of the common themes among them, again, this kind of individualized learning approach, challenging the schooling status quo, really meeting each child where they're at and helping them to close gaps and the low cost piece. I mean, I think that's what makes this model truly innovative and truly disruptive is that it is uh, it is so low cost, so it's accessible to more families. And then you have now um, 10 states that have universal or near universal education choice programs, uh, over 20 million students now eligible, over you know well over a third of the K-12 school age population now eligible for these private choice programs, many of which include micro schools and learning pods that are already kind of at that tuition rate that that a, an mm -hmm. ESA or one of these programs would fall under. So somewhere between like eight and ten thousand dollars a year for some of these education choice programs. Again, a kind of a fraction of the cost of per pupil expenditure in conventional public schools and well below traditional private school costs. So it makes these programs even more accessible to more families. And it's interesting, Andrew, I was in um, I was in Chicago uh, earlier this year, and mm -hmm. I visited several micro schools in the greater Chicago area. I'm in Boston, so just like you, we don't have any meaningful private school choice programs uh, in our states. Um, actually, I think you probably have a little, a little bit better with your tax yeah. scholarship program, but even that is uh, for now. On the <laughs> yeah. And still, we see entrepreneurship happening even in, in our states of um, parents mm -hmm. and teachers creating these models. And I'd say that probably three quarters of the entrepreneurs that I interview on my podcast and in my articles are former public school teachers who grew disillusioned with what they were seeing uh, in the conventional classroom, realized that their creativity uh, was being crushed just as much as their students' creativity um, and wanted to kind of rekindle their love of teaching and kind of reconnect with why they went into education to begin with. And they're finding such incredible joy and fulfillment in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I, I was going to go there, too. I, you know, I have conversations with my friends who are educators or, or elsewhere, and, and th they've been finding since, especially since COVID, that almost that light bulb moment of, whoa, what am I doing 
Like I'm not doing a service to my students or myself. Something's got to change here. And they've found other options. Um, before we go, though, I think what I would love to, to do is, as you are an expert in this space, where are some resources that parents could go to to, number one, learn um, and get themselves more involved in educational freedom, if you will, for themselves, for their kids, whatever it might be? Well, you can go to my website, liberatedpodcast.com, and read some of my articles and hopefully be inspired by what others are building and find one that's near you. There's also, you know, wonderful national organizations, kind of grassroots efforts um, of organizations that are trying to support microschool parents as well as microschool founders. I think about the National Microschooling Center or Microschool Solutions or Microschool Builders, uh, all kinds of resources there. And then what I really recommend if parents are listening and and thinking about what might be available in their area, because these exist everywhere, right? You know, I often hear people say to me, oh, that sounds so cool, but we don't have any of those in my community. And I say, well, you might be surprised. And sure enough, they are, because these really are everywhere. You just might have to to search for them a bit. Mm -hmm. So finding... um, Facebook groups, local, you know, parenting or education Facebook groups for your city or town or state, uh, sometimes homeschool groups or alternative education groups will have these kinds of discussions. And you can just post a, a question and see, you know, does something like this exist near me? And, I, and I, again, I think uh, listeners will be surprised at what they hear. Yeah. I, and I think one of the bigger surprises for me is the number of um even Catholic and other faith-based groups that have gotten out of the parochial system because they don't like what is going on there. It's, it, it's almost a mirror image of what, you know, I'm pulling my son or daughter out going here expecting, you know, something different, and it's the exact same, if not worse, in some cases. So I think you would be surprised in the audience as to what options exist for you and your family. And I've said this for the longest time. Like, I know I was weird, in the fact that I knew how I learned early on. But how many people that go into a public education system know how they learn? Like, what are the things that you can do? So for me, it was, I need to hear it. I need to write it down. And my memory just, it just takes it in. So I have more of an eidetic, you know, that type of a memory. Other people don't. Other people can't sit and listen to a lecture for 45 minutes, take notes, and get anything out of it. They're spaced out, they tune out, whatever. This is a solution to that. These are the ways in which you can learn how to educate yourself, your children, in ways that they and you can benefit. And I tell people that all the time. Find find ways to know how you learn and then marry that. Would you would you suggest that as well, I guess? Marry that with a Absolutely. educational opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what's so exciting now about this, again, decentralized, individualized education ecosystem that's emerging is there's really something for every family, for every child. Um, Families are able to, you know, find a school that kind of matches their needs and preferences uh, that's accessible and increasingly so. Uh, so that's what's really exciting is that there um, there really is something for everyone. And I often use the kind of analogy of the grocery store breakfast aisle. You know, we go into the grocery store breakfast aisle. We have a whole assortment of different cereals. We have organic oatmeal and regular <laughs> oatmeal. We have 
granola and small batch granola. We have breakfast bars and pancake mix and, you know, everything we could imagine, or we can go to the other parts of the grocery store and right. get bacon and eggs, right? So there's just so much variety and choice for our own individual needs and preferences. Um, and in education up until now, we have not had anything near that variety and choice. And so I think that we're just at the beginning of seeing, um, again, more personalization and more opportunities for families to find just the right educational fit for their children. Yeah. And I, I personally think that this is the most fascinating time to live in an educational uh, sphere if you're paying attention to it, because it's, again, to your point, the most innovative earth shattering change, at least for America, other places, we're not seeing this, but, um, it is happening, um, elsewhere, but really here in America, as we focus in on ourselves, we haven't seen this kind of change in education and the thought around education from parents, students, educators, all points in a very, very long time. So with that folks, I cannot tell you enough go check out the liberated podcast with our guest carrie mcdonald um what do you have coming up on the podcast uh either this week or heading into 2024 i have lenore skenazy uh the founder of let grow uh, which is an organization that focuses on um, providing more opportunities for childhood freedom and independence. You know, many of your viewers and listeners might be uh, someone like me who grew up in the, the 70s and the 80s where we had a lot of opportunity to kind of be uh, outside playing with friends unsupervised or having a lot of unstructured free time. And nowadays, um, young people are sadly constantly supervised and engaging in structured adult-led activities. And we wonder why we have skyrocketing rates of youth uh, mental health issues and anxiety and, and all of the things that, that didn't exist so much, certainly when I was a kid, possibly because we had more time to, to play and, and have uh, autonomy and freedom and independence. So uh, Lenore and I talk a lot about that. She's, of course, the author of Free Range Kids and the Free Range Kids Movement. Yeah, I think it's hilarious. Even my wife tells me the same stuff my mom does. Go outside and play and don't come back till it's dark outside <laughs> once in a while. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, not very often, at least. So uh, we appreciate your time. Again, look out for the Liberated Podcast. Where else can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y underscore E-D-U. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And we hope to have you back as we kind of talk through the education uh, portion of life in 2024. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Andrew.